0: Here this morning, um, I want to invite you to 1 Corinthians 15. That will be our text for the morning. We want to welcome Debbie Serrano back to our services this morning. Yes, she's been out for a while, and we're thankful to see you again. Glad to have you in the services this morning. So yesterday was a full day for me. I wanted to share a little bit. Angela's getting gonna blush over there. We spent a little bit of time in the ER last night. We were um, at a basketball game for our daughter Olivia down in the LA area. We were actually in Santa Barbara, and there was a point where we were sitting up in the top of the stands, and there was a point where we there was an amazing play that was done, and everybody jumps up and is just cheering really loud. And I look over at Angela, and she's like dripping with blood. And she had jumped up and hit her head on the, on the rim of the hoop that was, that was raised. And so we ended up in the ER last night, and she got some stitches. But I told her, I said, Listen, now you can go, your life story is as you hit your head on the rim, and that's where you got this scar from. <laughs> You don't have to tell them the rest of the story. You just say, I hid my head on the rim, and that's where I got this scar from. So, uh, But we thank the Lord that he is gracious, and she was fine. We got into the ER, and we weren't there for several hours, just one hour, which is pretty much a miracle in and of itself. If you've spent any time in the ER, you can be there for a long time. And so um, we were thankful for the shortness of our stay. We were thankful for the process that we went through, and and um, the, but she's here this morning, so we're glad that she's doing well. So if she asks, acts a little dizzy or anything like that, just know it's because she bonked her head yesterday. Let's look at the scriptures. I'm just messing with Angela this morning. We're glad to have her back from college um, for the week, and I'm sure that there are others who are expecting kids back from college for the week and are looking forward to that uh, time to spend with your family, and so... Um, hopefully, you'll be, have a, a good week, a blessed week in the Lord. As we come to the close of the 15th chapter of, of 1 Corinthians, dealing with uh, the resurrection as we've discussed um, really thoroughly throughout this chapter, and the Apostle Paul has instructed us in a number of different ways in, in regards to the resurrection of the body, We learned we've learned that it's a physical resurrection, that we will have bodies forever. We've learned that um, it's a work of God. It's a miracle, um, and he closes that. He comes to the end of this of this chapter, and he he presses the issue a little bit a little bit um, firmer, uh, he, more firmly. In the end, he presses the the really almost recaptures the whole truths that are being presented throughout the chapter in this last plea for the body to embrace the, the resurrection, um, for the church to embrace the resurrection of the body for the sake of, and we'll look at this next week, because the last verse is really a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a command that, that we need to be fruitful for the Lord. We need to be fruitful for eternal things. We need to be living um, as if we're going to continue to live forever, and that this Instead of sowing into this body, what it's saying in the whole 15th chapter is instead of sowing into this body, sow into the next body. And that's, that's Matthew 6, you know, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth by sowing into this um, perishable body, but sow into the things that are eternal by sowing into the imperishable things. By sowing things that are eternal in nature, like evangelism, witnessing to people, um, being consistent in life, being you know having the fruits of the spirit, those types of things are what we're called to 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 sow seeds that are going to have an eternal impact. Things that we can take with us to heaven, right? Because that's what matters. If we really are truly living for the next life or eternal life, then it matters what we take with us. It matters what we have when we get there. So it's super important that we get this. And the Apostle Paul recaptures this in the last portion and he presses it hard as well. So I want to do a little bit of review for the sake of understanding where we're at And uh, so we'll go back to verse 47 of the 15th chapter. The Bible says the first man was from the earth, a man of dust, which is Adam, obviously. The first man was Adam in the garden. The second man is, present tense, from heaven, speaking about Jesus Christ. Adam was, Jesus is. He says, as was Adam, or as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. So we are of the dust. And then puts us into the present tense that we are of Adam. Every one of us here is of Adam, the first Adam. Our physical body, what you see, what you touch, what you feel, what you interact with is a, is a product of the first Adam in the garden, We are a product of the, even today, as Christians, we are a product of the first Adam. But we're not only, as Christians, product of the first Adam, but we're also products of the second Adam. He says, um, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, which is Christ, so also are those who are of heaven, Again we have another present tense statement here so as Christ is we are. So we are right now currently presently we are of our original father Adam in our physical in a physical way and we are of Christ in a spiritual way. We are in Christ, we have these we have both of these things present within us or on us at this time. It's important to understand that so we get Um, what he's going to say in the next portion of Scripture. So he says, now we are in Adam, we are in Christ. We have a physical and we have a spiritual condition. Our physical condition is that we are perishing. We are declining. We are sinful in that physical, fleshly realm. The spiritual, we are progressing. We are getting stronger. We are getting more... uh, Full and alive, we are. Uh, we are. Uh, he says it in Second Corinthians four. He's like, well, while our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed every single day, and it's getting stronger. Our outward man is perishing; our inward man is strengthening because our inward man is preparing. Because that is the part of us that's not going to be changed. That's the part of us that is already complete. The outer part of us still needs to be changed. So we are currently presently in Adam and in Christ, at the present. And he says then he says, "Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." Now this is a prophetic statement, a statement about the future, that we're going to one day be in Christ, bear the image of Christ fully. And that means physically and spiritually we're going to be completely in the image of Christ. In the same way that Adam, the first Adam, who we still bear his image, the same way that he he was, it says, past tense, he was. So when he died, he he, he ceased to exist in his physical form, right? When When Adam died, he ceased to exist in a physical way. When we die... At the same, at the same, in the same way, we bear that until, that until that point of dying. And we look forward to being conformed or transformed completely into the image of Christ. Not just spiritually, but also physically. To, to literally bear the image of Christ. This is what First uh, John 3 tells us in verse 2 and 3. It says that we... Um, I'm going to just turn there. If you want to join me, you're welcome to. First John 3... He says in verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. So we are in Christ now. We are part of his family now. We are in him now. But it says this, um, and what we shall be or what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. This is at the second coming, for we will see him as he is. So at the second coming, we're going to be transformed physically into the physical image of Christ. We're, we'll be perfectly in his image, not just spiritually, but physically. And that's, a, that's, a, that's something that we're looking forward to, something that we're anticipating. So in regards to the mystery of the kingdom, or the mystery of the resurrection, which is the title of this morning's message, it's important to note that we haven't arrived yet. And that's really the, the, the context of this last portion is, is that we haven't, we're not there. And the, and the Corinthian people, they believed that they had arrived. They had separated the physical from the spiritual, and so they had arrived spiritually. They, when they got saved, they were completely renewed spiritually, right? And we are new creatures in Christ. old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new, which is a, a statement of salvation, so that's all true and accurate about us, but yet, as Christians, we still haven't arrived. We're not finished. We're not complete yet. There's, there's still a work to be done, and we need to embrace that as we look at the idea of sanctification and glorification. It's almost like taking justification, which is salvation, God claims a person to be righteous and innocent on the basis of his son, and throwing out any need for sanctification and glorification because justification is, is enough. But justification is not enough, is it? You have to experience sanctification and you ultimately have to experience glorification. If you don't experience those things, then the work is partial. It's incomplete. And it needs to be completed. So we are not yet fit right now as Christians. We are not yet fit for heaven. We're not yet fit for eternal things. We're being fit for heaven. We're being fit for eternal things. William Barclay, which was a, a theologian, a scholar uh, of the past, a historical scholar, he wrote it, he said it this way, about our being unfit for heaven. He insisted that we are not fit to inherit the kingdom of heaven, as the text says. We may well enough be equipped to get on with the life of this world, but as for the, um, but for the life of the world to come, we are not fit. A man may be able to run enough to catch his morning train, but he would need to be a very different man to be able to run enough to run in the Olympic Games. A man may write well, enough to amuse his friends, but he would need to be a very different man to write something which men would not willingly let die. A man may walk well or may talk well enough in the circle of his friends or a club, But he would need to be a very different man to talk well enough to hold his own in a circle of real scholars and experts. A man always needs to be changed to enter into a higher grade of life or a higher level of life. And in the same way, we as Christians, we are being changed. We are being transformed. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. That's the promise of Romans chapter number eight that those he called, those he predestined, those he justified, these he, are all, he is conforming right now. He is conforming us into the image. It uses the word image here the image of Christ. We're being conformed into Christ physically. We're being conformed into Christ physically. We have already become conformed to Christ spiritually, which is the only good thing about us right now. We are being conformed into Christ physically. And this is what is, again, we call it sanctification and ultimately glorification, where Christ is working out of us what he has already worked into us. Philippians 3 describes it this way. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who has worked in you both the will and the desire to do that which is pleasing to him. Now God has worked in us all of the things that we need for sanctification. Now we're working that out. We're we're beginning to live that out. And, and it's a struggle, again, like the runner might be able to run to catch his train, but, but can't run in the Olympics. That's, that's, that's what the Christian life is. We might be able to do a little bit, but, we, but we, still have, we still have a long way to go. So that brings us to our text this morning. Let's read it together and, and um, in verse 50 down to 57, and we'll look at the mystery of the resurrection Put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable body puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then it will come to pass the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see four things here in in this passage of Scripture that deal with the the mystery of the resurrection and things, not, not just the mystery, but I think in addition to the mystery you would say the necessity, if you will, of the resurrection, There's something that we're still looking forward to, we're still anticipating, even as Christians that have been completely conformed to the image of Christ internally, we are still anticipating something by faith that happens that will bring us to completion. We haven't arrived yet. We haven't reached the goal. Yes, we have placed our faith in Christ, which which guarantees us that we will reach the goal right? Abraham didn't wake up one morning and say, okay, I believe God that I'm going to make it into, into Canaan land. And then God, God, you know, opens up a portal and he walks through it and he's in Canaan land, right? So God promised Abraham, Abraham believed God. The Bible says it was accounted unto him to righteousness. And then he journeyed and he woke up every morning, and by faith he walked in in obedience to God and submission to God and faith in God till he made it to the promised land. We have the same promise. Our promise is not that we're going to make it to Canaan land; it's that we're going to make it to heaven. And we're on a journey. And when we become believers in Christ and we place our faith in Christ, it guarantees that we're going to make it to the destination. It doesn't open up a portal and we walk through to the destination. We're on a journey, it's a sanctification journey. It's conforming us into the image of Christ. That's why we go through the troubles and the trials and the difficulties of this life because God is sanctifying us. He's he's setting us apart for his work, his eternal work, not his temporary work. This is why we as Christians need not to be afraid of suffering and difficulty because it is the means by which God is making us Christ-like. It is the work that he is doing to make us what he wants us to be. so let 's look at a few of these things this morning. First of all, I passed out this morning an outline. So if you have one of those, you 're welcome to follow along. That was at the request of somebody here in the church, and so we 'll see how it goes. I didn 't put any numbers on there. You notice that So I 'm not tied down to any numbers. they're just dots. Because then, then I can, you could can say, "Well, what number was that? I was like it wasn 't a number, it was just a dot. We're safe with the dots, right? Um, the first thought is our, un, our unfit condition. Our unfit condition. And there are a few things I want you to notice about the unfit condition in our text. First of all, he says this, I tell you this, brothers. We want to stop there and understand that he's talking to believers. This term is not used in the New Testament other than to describe the Apostle Paul having an intimate relationship or an intimate uh, uh, co-laboring with certain men. Matter of fact, when the Apostle Paul uses this term in the New Testament, he often names the people specifically that he's referring to. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers here. This text is not written to unbelievers. It's not written to those people who are lost. It's written to those people who are saved. It's a term of endearment. It's a it's a it's a familial term that we we use to talk about family. The apostle Paul is talking about his brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have labored along beside of him. So if we're here this morning and we're followers of Jesus Christ, we can't throw out this text as to being about somebody else. We can't look at this text and says this is about lost people who don't come who who don't who have not yet accepted Jesus that they're not yet. Um, able to inherit the kingdom of God. This is talking about believing people. It's talking about Christian people. It's talking about followers of Christ, brothers, and not just brothers, but I think you could even press a little bit further. The apostle Paul is talking about co-laborers. These are people who are in Corinth who are likely maybe elders and leaders in the church. The apostle Paul was like a bishop. He kind of oversaw several churches. So this theology, this, this theology has crept into the church that there is, no, there is no resurrection. There's no need for the resurrection because the body doesn't really matter. And the Apostle Paul is correcting that, not for unbelievers, but he's correcting it for believers. Now, I would say this to you. It's equally important for unbelievers to understand this as well. That if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you've never committed yourself to him In justification, which is the beginning stages of salvation, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, you have have no guarantee at all of making it to glorification, which is being welcomed into the kingdom of God. If you're a Christian this morning, truly a follower of Jesus, you have been guaranteed that you are going to make it into heaven. And you're on a journey of being conformed into an image that's going to get you there. You're not just, listen to me, you're not just going to make it into heaven because you're spiritually accepted by God. You're going to make it into heaven because you are physically accepted by God. You are going to be accepted as perfect, not just in a spiritual realm, which is where we are today, but also in a physical realm. And that's what he's telling them, is you're not yet fit. You're not yet there. You've not yet arrived at being acceptable into God's kingdom as a whole person. You're acceptable as a half person, but I I submit to you that we are physically, our our physicality is a part of who we are. It is a part of me. I don't get to leave it behind. I get to take it with me. That's why sanctification is so important, people... Scholars often say sanctification is the only visible part of salvation that gives us hope that we're going, that we've been justified, and we will be glorified. If you're not experiencing sanctification, then you should not be confident that you've been justified and you will be glorified, because sanctification is that piece that really proves that you had one and will have the other. So he talks to believing. He's talking to a believing audience. He's talking to Christians. Num- number two, under unfit condition. There's unexpected bad news. What's the bad news? It's flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And this word, this the idea of flesh and blood is just simply a um, it's a euphemism for, for man in his current condition, man in his in in, in our current our current state. Man man as we are cannot inherit. And the word inherit, you know, you don't want to dig too deeply into that. It's just you are not in your current state going to get into heaven. We cannot get into heaven in our current state. And this, again, the idea of flesh and blood is just a way to describe man in their current condition. Matthew 16, Jesus tells the apostle Peter that flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but your Father who is in heaven. Galatians 1.16, Paul... um, Was 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 not did not receive the revelation from God by flesh and blood, but by God. Ephesians six says we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We see this theme really throughout the New Testament. It's it's most often just referring to mankind. That's what he's saying is mankind in their current state, whether whether you have been justified or you have not been justified, mankind in their current state cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's saying. And the word cannot here carries with it a double negative. It's one of the strongest negatives in the New Testament that literally says you cannot, it is absolutely impossible you have no ability, zero ability at all to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You might say, well, Pastor John, I, I have been, I will enter into heaven spiritually, but maybe not physically. No, you will enter into heaven either both or not. It's not an either or, it's a both and. That's what he's telling them. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He describes it this way in Romans 8, and verse 7 and 8, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's incapable of submitting to God's law. The flesh is incapable. That's why we're told not to live according to the flesh, but to live according to the to live according to the spirit. That's why we're told to mortify the, the flesh, put the flesh to death, uh, uh, discipline the flesh. We're told all of these things because we're gonna, we're gonna make it there, not just, um, we're not gonna make it there just spiritually, but we're gonna make it there physically. We're gonna be accepted by God physically. So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Heaven cannot be uh, merited or 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 uh, entered into by mankind in their current condition. Salvation starts the process, and physical redemption concludes it. The Bible talks about us being spiritually redeemed at salvation. It talks about us being physically redeemed at the resurrection. And it says, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, that, that we are eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We are eagerly waiting for the resurrection of our bodies. We are eagerly waiting for the restoration of our bodies. Why would we be eagerly waiting for the restoration of something that doesn't matter? Because it does matter. The next thought in regards to unfit is that death maintains power over humanity. Even today, as a believer, death has power over you. Matter of fact, listen to me, the only power that death has over us is physical power. For an unbeliever, death has a physical and a spiritual um, power. For the believer, death only has power over you physically. Death can only hurt you physically as a believer. As a follower of Christ, the only threat that death can, that death can make to you, the only Fear that death can produce in you is a physical threat and a physical fear. Death cannot cause you to be afraid spiritually if you're a true follower of Jesus. The only power that death has over us as followers of Jesus is a physical power, but it is a real physical power, isn't it? Because even as Christians, don't we fear death? It does still have a sway in our life. It has a sway in the way that we think. It has a sway in the way that we act. It has a sway in the way that we function. But the only power that death has is a physical power. It's the power over the physical. Flesh and blood have been stained by sin. All flesh and blood remains sinful. And you guys, we see this every day of our lives. You're reminded of the fact that your flesh and your blood is sinful. Because you sin There's no such thing as sinless perfection in this whole thing There's no such thing as sinless perfection Every day that you sin You're reminded of the fact that my flesh and blood Is not ready to enter the kingdom of heaven It's not ready It's not fit I'm not fit to be there Physically I'm guaranteed to be fit to be there But I'm not fit to be there yet I am being fit to be there. Philippians 3:12, the Apostle Paul says it this way: "Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Even the Apostle Paul, the greatest of all apostles in the New Testament, understood that he hadn't yet arrived. This is why the Apostle Paul was consistently striving for the mastery, striving to be more in the image of Christ, striving, as he says here in this text, to reach the goal for which he was purchased by Christ. He was striving to attain Christ's purpose for him. Why would he strive to obtain something that was already his? He hadn't yet arrived. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. So Christ has made the Apostle Paul his through redemption of his spirit. The Apostle Paul was striving to, 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 to fulfill Christ's purposes in doing that. He says this at the end of the passage here. I want to skip down to verse 56, and then we'll go back up. He says, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin simply means that it is sin that gives death its power. It is sin that makes death fearful. If there was no sin, then death would not make us afraid. Death would have no sting. It would have no power over us if it wasn't for sin. Sin means, if you're sinful, sin means you're going to have to stand before a just and holy God one day and you're going to give an account for your life. And if you are not in Christ, you will be judged eternally in a place called hell. That's what sin means. That's what makes death fearful. How many people know somebody that has died in their sins, an unsaved person, an unbelieving person that knew they were going to face God on judgment day, but refused to submit to him. There are books out there that are written about testimonies of unbelieving people who have died. And if you read those books, they will bring tears to your eyes of the the horrific experience of dying, knowing that you're going to face God when you wake up the next day, but refusing to submit to him. The idea that we are sinful is a universal idea, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is a universal idea, and we remain physically in that condition. And the, and the prospect of standing before a just and holy God and giving account for that is a fearful thing. So death has a powerful sway over those who do not know Christ, a, a, an enormously powerful sway over those who do not know Christ because they're afraid Why why do we think it is that the world does everything in their power to overcome this idea of dying? Because they're they're fearful. And it has less of a sway over Christians, and we'll look at why. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What 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 makes death powerful is sin and condemnation. What makes sin powerful is the law. The law makes sin powerful because it makes sin known. That's why people want to do away with the law. If I don't know the law, then I won't know that I'm sinful and I won't fear dying. The law brings our sin to the forefront. It makes us know that we're sinners. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You come to the place where you begin to fear the Lord, you might come to a place where you begin to receive him. Romans 3 and verse 19 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and everyone in the whole world may become guilty before God. That's what the law does. The law utterly condemns everybody. Nobody, man, when you stand in front of the law, nobody is innocent. And nobody is better than anybody else. It really levels the playing field, doesn't it? There's no pride when we stand before the law. Sin has kept us from being spiritually capable of entering heaven, so Jesus Christ gave us a new heart. Let me say that again. Sin has kept us from being spiritually capable of entering heaven, so God gave us a new heart. Sin also keeps us from being spiritually, physically capable of entering heaven. Therefore, Jesus will give us new bodies. That's what the text is all about. This is why even though we are saved, we look forward in faith to the redemption of our bodies. I'm going to read Romans eight twenty three through 25. I quoted it, or I gave you my version of it a moment ago. I'll give you the Bible version of it now. It says not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For this hope, for in this hope we are saved. I want you to know, notice something. Christianity is always about hope. It's always about hope. We're always looking forward to and expecting something else. That's what he says here. It's always built. This is the hope that saves us. Um, Romans, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Listen to what he says here in verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it patiently. Hope is believing and expecting something that you can't see, and that is the basis of the Christian life. Unfit, our unfit condition, number one. Number two, a mysterious transformation. He calls it a mystery here. Uh, It comes from the Greek word mysterion, which means something that was unknown before this point but now should be known. It's something that was hidden, was kept secret, if you will, from the past, and now it's being revealed. Some things in the Old Testament were kept secret from us in the New Testament, and, and now they're being revealed to us. That's a mystery in the Bible, and that term is used over and over again to describe the gospel in the New Testament. It was a mystery to many until Christ came and made it understandable. In John 14 through 16, he talks to his disciples, and he says, says, you're not going to understand these things. They're going to be a mystery to you until the Holy Spirit comes and makes them known to you, and that's what the Holy Spirit is meant to do. So it's a mystery. There's a mysterious transformation that's going to happen, and there's a few things I want you to, to notice about this mystery. Number one is the universality of the transformation. He says this. I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There's an an infusion here of another group of people that hasn't been noted yet throughout the book. That's people who are believers and yet still alive. When the Lord returns, there will be people who will be believers and still alive. So what happens to them? They are not fit to get into the kingdom of heaven. They're not fit. So what's going to happen to them? The same thing that's going to happen to believers that have died. The body is going to be transformed for the dead believers. The body is going to be transformed for living believers. There's going to be a transformation or a resurrection of sorts for both dead and living believers. It is a universal thing. All believers will be transformed, but not all believers will die. Jared read it well in 1 Thessalonians 5 where he says the dead will rise first and then those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together. Dying just gives you a head start. You get to go first and we get to come up, those who are alive get to come up behind you. But there's a transformation that takes place for everybody who is a follower of Jesus that's going to make them fit physically for heaven. We talked about the sowing of the the rest of the chapter. We've dealt with this whole thing. There's a miracle that's going to happen. And if it it doesn't happen, we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven, that we become physically fit for God's kingdom. So first of all is the universality of the transformation. It's not just for dead believers, but it's for all believers. There's a transformation that's going to take place. They're going to take off that which is perishable and put on that which is imperishable. They're going to take off that which is is stained by sin and put on that which is is completely righteous in Christ. They're going to take off the dirty robe and put on the clean robe. Um, Isaiah talks about this, and we'll get into that in a moment here. So universality of the transformation, number one. Number two is the necessity of the transformation. You'll, You'll notice three terms that are used in this text that are really important to the text. It says that they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then it says this perishable must... Put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on. If you underline or highlight, underline the word "cannot," "must," and "must." These terms all describe the absolute necessity of this transformation. It's not optional. It's not optional. The resurrection and the glorification are not optional parts of the salvation process. They are. They are intricate parts of the process. If you do not experience the transformation and the glorification, you do not get into heaven. It's an absolute necessity, cannot, must, and must. The fullness of the transformation is number three. The fullness of the transformation, the word change here, it's used several times in this passage, it's that there's going to be a change that takes place. And the change that takes place, again, it's a new word that's used in our text here, uh, a new word to this text to describe what the, what the resurrection is going to look like. We're going to be changed. The word means to make something different, to exchange one thing for another or to transform. What happened to us spiritually when we got saved, right? 2 Corinthians five seventeen: if anybody be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. We know that that spiritually is true about us, right? Am I still John Prettyman, even though all things are new? I'm still the same person as I was, but Christ has made me new on the inside. He's made me clean. He's made me acceptable, right? The same thing that happened to me at conversion is going to happen to me at the resurrection, only it happened in a spiritual way, and it will happen in a physical way. The change that's going to take place in an individual's life is a change that is going to be the transformation of the... the, perishable into the imperishable. Okay, don't, don't, don't misread this to think it's going to be a doing away with the perishable and a new imperishable. It's going to be the change of the perishable into the imperishable. It's a transformation that takes place. It doesn't do away with you. It doesn't do away with you. It transforms you. It changes you. It alters you. And then the, the term that's used several other times in this text is the term put on. This, uh, the perishable must put on the, imperish- or the imperishable. And this is a term, it's a clothing term. It's like a garment being put on and taken off. It's like changing your clothes. You go home and you change your clothes, right? You take dirty clothes off and you put clean clothes on. You think that's a picture of anything? We're going to take off clothes in a physical way and put on new clothes. It's going to be us still. We're going to be clothed in the perfections of Christ. We're going to be not just indwelt with the perfections of Christ, but clothed with the perfections of Christ, fully in the image of Christ. This is what we look forward to and what we anticipate. The change that's going to take place is going to be similar to that of salvation, yet it's going to be physical. Physical. I am currently acceptable by God fully in a spiritual way. I will one day be fully acceptable by God in both physical and spiritual ways. The timing of the transformation is important as well. He uses some, he uses some analogies here to help us understand this. He says that in the moment, the, the word moment here just comes from the Greek word atomos, which we get our English word atom from. It's an unsplittable something. So what he's describing is an unsplittable amount of time. You think about it, all time is splittable almost, right? You have minutes are split in two, seconds, good, hours are split in two, minutes and days are split in two, all time is splittable, so the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to use a term that has no splittable to it. It's such a small amount of time that this transformation is going to happen that you cannot split it. And then he uses the term twinkling of an eye, which is the quickest and fastest thing that your body can do, which is your eye twitter or light reflects off. I mean, a lot of different scenarios that go into that, but it's just going to be the word I used is simply this it's going to be instantaneous. Why does he say this to us? Why does he say the final transformation is going to be instantaneous? Because you can't accomplish it on your own. It's a miracle of God. It's not a work that you accomplish and work towards. It's a work of God in your life, just like salvation was. Glorification in our new bodies will be an instantaneous act. Be instantaneous. It will happen at the last trump, which is a sign or a signal of the eschaton. The last days is going to happen in the last days. The full completion of our transformation happens in the last days. Your redemption isn't going to happen by hard work. It's not going to happen by cleaning yourself up or doing good deeds. The final transformation of your body will take place instantaneously by a miracle act of God in the last days. We know it as the rapture or the second coming of Christ. And let me say this to you. It's important that you understand we need to make sure that the resurrection that the, that, that the motivation by which we pursue righteousness is not that we will one day be accepted into heaven, but the motivation by which we pursue righteousness is that we have been accepted by God and that we love him and we're looking forward to him finishing the work that he started. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So we have the mysterious transformation. Number three is the glorious victory. The Bible says this: that death. And let me just read it in our text here. He says, "And and 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 this when this perishable puts on imperishable, and this mortal puts on immortality, which is at the resurrection. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death." where is your sting this is a this is a form of mockery in a sense where he is literally mocking death for not having any power any longer he's making fun of he's jesting at death as if it were a person like he's just jesting at them like you have no power anymore you've lost your sting you've lost your ability to cause fear you've lost your ability to impact people because you've lost all of your strength you've lost all of your strength all of your all of your um uh, power, you've lost all of it in the what? In the resurrection, the devil and, the, and not just the devil, but but death loses every power that it has in the resurrection. It loses it all. It's so important to understand this truth because the Bible tells us in the, a few verses before this that the final death to be de- the final enemy to be destroyed is death. And the final enemy is destroyed in the resurrection. Remember this, the only power that that death has over you is what? It's physical. So once the physical has been dealt with, what power does death have over us? If you think about this for a moment, when Satan... When Satan put Jesus on the cross, right? The Roman soldiers, it was all, you know, God obviously orchestrated, Satan was obviously the one carrying it out. When Satan hung on the when Jesus hung on the cross, did Satan see himself as a failure or a victor? Did Satan see himself as a failure or a victor? Was Satan a failure or a victor? Satan was an absolute failure. When we die, does Satan see himself as a failure or a victor? When we die, does Satan see himself as a failure or a victor? He sees himself as a victor. When we die, is Satan a failure or a victor? He has lost all power over us, he has lost all sway, he has lost anything that would cause fear. And trepidation, he has lost everything that he has over us right now, which is fully based upon our fallen physical condition. And when the Lord deals with our fallen physical condition, Satan has no say in our world anymore. Isn't that a great victory? Isn't there great hope in knowing that when I die and rise again, Satan has no more say in my life? That's the victory of the resurrection. That's what he says here. when He, he says this, when death, and he uses this term, and I love this term, he says, when death has been drunk down. When death has been swallowed. I mean, he uses it literally, he uses a picture of someone just gulping down something. Just like taking it and just gulping it down. When death has been finally drunk, it's been drunk, it's been, it's been poured in, And you've experienced it. Then is death is swallowed down in, in what? Victory. That's the victory right there. The victory moment is when death has lost all of its power. And then the Lord looks down at death and says, Death, where is your strength? Death, where is your ability to cause fear and intrepidation? Death, you've lost all strength because my people are the winners. We're the winners. Yeah, we're going through this life, and it's hard, and it's difficult because this this body is still perishable. But man, when this body is gone, there'll be a new body, and we'll be winners. The Christ-like body. Death's sting and death's power will be removed at the resurrection. In the same way that Satan, well, I've said that already. When Satan has done his worst, it is God accomplishing his best. Remember that. Everything that Satan does, Job, Satan did so much to Job. Was Job, was Satan a victor or a failure in Job's world? Failure. Everything that Satan does is a failure and it's a success for God. The last thought is simply this, the last verse here. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The last thought is the gracious, our gracious God and victorious Jesus. God is the one who gifts these things to us. He, he gifts these. It's a gift from him. It's a, a grace the resurrection is a grace that God gives us. It's unmerited, it's undeserved, it's unearned, it's free. There's nothing that we can do to, to, to merit it. When we leave this world, we will leave this world. We will die perishable because we are unfit. When we die, at the moment of death, no matter how much sanctification you have gone through, you will die unfit. And you will wake up the next morning, the next moment, fit. That's the promise. And it will, be because of the, it will be because of our gracious heavenly father who has completed the work that he started at, when he justified us and called us into his family, when he sanctified us and conformed us into his image, and then when he glorifies us, he completes us in his image. And let me say this to you. Not only is God the gifter, but Jesus is the victor. All of this happens because we are in Christ. You see, ultimately, we're not the victorious ones. Jesus is. It's like the, it's like the pitcher who goes out there and pitches a no-hitter, right? Everybody on the team wins the game, right? But did they do any work? I mean, he threw a no, nobody hit the ball to the third baseman and he made, a, I mean, he threw a no hitter. Nobody got on base. Nobody, everybody else just kind of, I mean, it was like strike, 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 and he struck everybody out. We're not the victorious ones. We're the benefit of one who is victorious. Jesus Christ overcame death, he defeated it. He lived a perfect life. He was born of a virgin, he lived a perfect life. he, he He was beaten and bruised for our sins. He hung on a tree for our sins. He died, and three days later, he rose from the dead in his own power and strength, and he defeated death. And you know what he does to us? He gives it to us as a gift. He's like, here, my children, I want you to have this too. And by being in him, we have everlasting life, eternal life. It is his victory. It is for his glory. And it is for God's glory. Let me read this to you. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness like a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The Lord clothes us that way. The Lord clothes us that way, physically and spiritually. If you're with us this morning and you do, you do not know Christ as your Savior, you're not a part of the family of God, you're not yet, you've not yet even placed your faith in him, you have no guarantee. Really, you have a guarantee of not being accepted into heaven. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death If you have not been accepted by God on the basis of what Christ has done, then the wages of your sin is death. And you will face him on judgment day, and you will be rejected, and you will be judged for the sins that you have committed. My plea to you and God's plea to you is simply this, place your faith in Christ. Christ has already won the victory. He already defeated death. He already defeated sin. He already defeated Satan. And he is offering to you as a free gift the salvation that only he can give. If you want to, if you listen to me, folks, if you think by cleaning up your life, if you think by taking enough showers and doing enough enough, uh, spiritual religious things and doing enough good deeds that you're going to somehow wash the stains of your sin off, you've been fooled because you can't. You can't wash the stains of your sin off. They are there. That's why he says you are not going to enter heaven like you are. You are stained with sin and every last one of us is. But what God promises is this those who place their faith in Christ will one day be transformed by the supernatural power of God into the image of Christ perfectly and accepted into his kingdom. That's the promise we have. And you know what? You know the part that we play in it? We just trust. We just simply trust. If you're here today and you're a believer, this is for you. This is for you. It's how we focus on life. It's how we view life. It's how we make decisions throughout each day. Do we live with the mindset that we are being fit for the kingdom? We're going through sanctification like the Apostle Paul. We're striving. We're working. We're striving. Not so that we can earn something, but because we're going somewhere. Where are we going? We're going to glorification. We started at justification, we know we end at glorification, and now we're walking through sanctification. And let me say this to you in closing, sanctification is not easy. It's very revealing, but it's not easy. We must fight the good fight of faith. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this day. Thank you for your word and For all the promises that we receive from it. Thank you for your grace, for the promise of salvation to all those who believe, and also the promise of glorification to all those who believe. Help us to accept and acknowledge that we've not arrived. Help us to be humble with that reality and to press in sanctification towards the goal, knowing and expecting that you will fulfill your promises, accomplish your purposes. And bring us into your kingdom, fully accepted by you. All because of your grace. Please help us this morning. Guide us and direct us for your glory in Jesus' name.